Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Philip Goff. Philip is a philosopher known for his work on consciousness and the philosophy of mind, particularly for his defense of panpsychism, the view that consciousness is a fundamental feature of the universe. He's an associate professor at Durham University in the UK. His books include Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness, and Consciousness and Fundamental Reality. So Philip is an advocate of a controversial but very interesting theory of consciousness known as panpsychism, and he defends it as well as I've ever heard it defended. But before we get there in this conversation, we rehearse what may be familiar ground to some listeners. We talk about the hard problem of consciousness as opposed to the easy problems of consciousness. We talk about the problem with materialist explanations of consciousness. We talk about the problem with dualist explanations of consciousness. Philip challenges my narrative about scientific progress in a really interesting way. We talk about the global workspace and integrated information theories of consciousness. We talk about the principle of parsimony in science and how it relates to rival theories of consciousness. And finally, we get to Philip's case for panpsychism. I really enjoyed this one, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, Philip Goff. Okay, Philip Goff. Great Hello. to meet you. Lovely to meet you, Coleman. Looking forward to checking. Thanks for coming on my show. Yeah. Happy to be here. Okay, so your faculty profile says, and I quote the first sentence, my main research project is trying to work out how consciousness fits into our overall theory of reality. So I see you set a very modest goal for yourself. Yeah, you could say that. I guess, I guess I've just always been obsessed by consciousness as long as I, back as I can remember, actually. I mean, I think, I think there are a number of, the, of these phenomena that philosophers find troubling because they, they're hard to fit into our standard scientific worldview. Other, other examples are things like free will. You know, how do we reconcile human freedom with a, the deterministic or near-deterministic world we seem to get from physics? Or value, facts about value. How do facts about good and bad and right and wrong fit in with observable scientific facts. But I think consciousness is the, is the most fascinating because in all these other cases, it's always at least an option to maybe deny the phenomenon exists. You know, maybe we don't really have free will in the way we ordinarily think, think we do, or maybe there aren't really facts about good and bad and right and wrong. Maybe they're just, you know, projections of our subjective feelings. But when it comes to consciousness, the idea that that doesn't exist, you know, the idea that nobody's ever felt pain or see, seen red just seems intolerable even for the, the wackiest philosophers. So consciousness is, is fascinating because it's, it's so hard to deny it exists, and yet it's so hard to fit into our standard picture of the universe. So that's why it's always kept me awake at night. So like you, I've been very interested in the puzzle of consciousness for a long time. And that was 
arguably my main interest when I was a philosophy major at Columbia. But for those in the audience who may not get so hung up on this issue or may not have thought of it, what's so puzzling? You know, human beings, we, we can feel. Uh, we're not just machines, although computers now can do every day more and more of the things that we can do and robots can do some of the things we can do. We're not robots. We feel and we think and there's something it's like to be us and it's always been that way and presumably animals also have an interior experience and things like tables and chairs don't. What's so puzzling? Yeah, there are a couple of ways into this. I mean, one thing is it, it just as a matter of fact, I think most people will agree it, it, it is still a deep, deep mystery where it comes from. You know, after, despite our great and developing scientific understanding of the brain, we still lack even the beginnings of an explanation of how electrochemical signaling is able to produce an inner world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes that each of us enjoys every second of waking life. So this is what David Chalmers famously, famously called the hard problem of consciousness, this challenge of explaining where consciousness comes from, how brains manage to produce it. And so I think it's generally agreed that, that we just really haven't got the beginnings of an explanation there. So we know, I mean, we know what we have made progress on is working out which bits of the brain, which bits of, which kinds of brain activity go along with which kinds of conscious experience. There's still very little consensus, actually. There are a number of different proposals and um, people fight over them, but we've made some progress. So we know that, we know as a matter of fact, that certain kinds of brain activity goes along with conscious experience. And we know even in some specific cases, which kinds of brain activity go along with which kind of experience what we're totally clueless on is why. Why should that be? And, you know, digging a little deeper, if you, if you just think about the wonderful rich story we get from neuroscience about what goes on in the brain, you know, neurons firing, action potentials, chemical signals, uh, this very complicated story of chemical interaction. On the face of it, it seems that all of that could have gone, gone on completely in the absence of consciousness, not, none of that story seems to mention feelings and experiences and colors and sounds and smells. It's just this complicated story of electrochemical signaling. You know, if you, you said just now um, that we are conscious, and of course we are, but if aliens came from another planet that were physiologically very different to us and they studied us from the outside, poked around in our brains... It's not obvious they'd know we're conscious. They, they, they might just think we're complicated mechanisms. There's, it's uh, that the whole scientific story we currently have doesn't seem to mention consciousness at all, really. I know there's a famous science fiction story, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with, where um, I think aliens visit Earth and then report back to their alien overlords. Uh, and they're trying to convince their fellow aliens that uh, and they are silicon-based life forms. They're trying to convince people that we met these carbon-based life forms, and they're made of meat. And I'm pretty sure that the meat is capable of thinking. And they go, "Hold on a second! Don't be crazy. Meat couldn't possibly think. Surely, there the meat is controlling some silicon-based thing that is doing the thinking." And he's like, "No, no, it's the meat that is doing the thinking. They're meat, a hundred percent true. We looked at a hundred percent through, which is which is a, a really clever way of inverting the intuition here and and saying there's nothing 
we just have no idea why it is that the chemical reactions in our brains or, you know, the, the physical reactions in our brains produce an associated experience when we can study similar chemical reactions inside a beaker in your science classroom. And we're pretty sure there's nothing it's like to be that reaction. So what explains the difference between matter that becomes conscious and matter that doesn't? So let's just look at some of the obvious explanations. One is materialism. Materialism, the idea that consciousness can be explained in terms of the physical processes in the brain. What's wrong with that? Yeah, so that is still probably the dominant view, although only just the, uh, there's this, people might be interested in the um, the Phil Papers survey, which was a, a survey of English-speaking philosophers throughout the world, their opinions on on uh, philosophical matters. Do you believe in God? Do you think we have free will? And so on. And on consciousness, 52% held mater- material, inclined to a materialist view, uh, and 32% were opposed, and then the others are sort of agnostic or don't like the question. So it is the majority view, but it, it's a fairly close run thing. It's not Brexit, but so, um, but yeah, so, and, and you can see the attraction. I think many people think of this as the scientific view. You know, this is, and so I think that's where it gets a lot of its credibility. Although I would actually dispute that association. Maybe when we've got onto some of the other views, I think actually all of these different options on consciousness are different philosophical options, and all of them are equally compatible with with the scientific data. So, so I don't think really this is a choice between rival scientific theories in the way that some people sometimes think. But anyway, I'm 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 rambling. Let me come to your question. What what, what exactly is is wrong with materialism? So, the, I mean, the first thing is what we've already said, I suppose, that despite decades of um, of trying to solve Charm- David Chalmers' hard problem of consciousness, of trying to explain consciousness in terms of complicated electrochemical signaling, we've just got absolutely nowhere. And it's not just that it's not, this explanatory project is not completed. It literally hasn't got anywhere. There isn't a single conscious experience that we've managed to explain in terms of electrochemical signaling, right? As I say, it's not like the science of consciousness has made great progress in identifying which kinds of brain activity go along with conscious experience. These are sometimes called the neural correlates of consciousness, which kinds of brain activity, but it's made absolutely no progress on this, the aspiration of the materialist to explain why. So that's one one thing to point out. And, you know, I, I would say there are just other philosophical options that are making more progress. But dig in a little deeper. You might say, okay, you know, maybe we just haven't got there. Dig in a little deeper. I think we should we shouldn't be surprised that our current scientific approach, that physical science, as we now conceive of it, struggles to explain consciousness because it was designed precisely to ignore consciousness. So this is what I argue in my book, Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. Quick plug. I trace this problem actually back to the intellectual foundations of the scientific revolution. So Galileo in 1623, the father of modern science, he wanted science to have a purely mathematical language, something we kind of now take for granted. But this was quite a radical innovation of Galileo. He said, right, from now on, our fundamental science is going to be purely mathematical, what he called natural philosophy, what we now call physical science. But he appreciated, I think, that you can't capture the qualities we encounter in our experience in the purely quantitative language of mathematics. You know, you can't capture in an equation 
that deep red you experience as you watch the setting sun, these colors and sounds and smells and tastes, you can't fully capture them in mathematical language. So Galileo essentially says, well, if we want science to be mathematical, we have to take consciousness outside of the domain of science. So he, there's this radical division in Galileo's worldview. There's, there's two domains. There's the domain of science with its purely mathematical properties, size, shape, location, motion. And there's the domain of consciousness outside of the domain of science with its qualities of colors, sounds, smells, and tastes. And this was the start of mathematical physics which, as we all know, has gone incredibly well. And it's, you know, produced such incredible technology. And I think 400 years later, we're now going through a period of history where people are so blown away by the success of physical science that it makes them think, oh, this is the truth. You know, this is the full story. It's going to explain everything, including consciousness. Well, no, the reason it's been so successful was because it was designed to exclude consciousness. So I think if we now want to bring consciousness back into the scientific story, we need to rethink that conception of science that was bequeathed to us by Galileo. So it's a bit long-winded. It's interesting. No, that's okay. Uh, so I think just occurred to me to frame it this way is that science has been encroaching bit by bit on what used to be explained by immaterial phenomena, right? Uh, the evolution of life, for example, the um, disease, right? Some people just get struck by disease and other people would seem totally fine. And the rational explanation at the time before science might be God, right? Or that you must have done, right? Like okay, my sister went down to the, to the river or my sister forgot to pray today and I remember to pray and she ended up getting sick and I didn't. So it's quite logical to think that prayer prevents sickness, especially if that's something I've been taught by my local witch doctor or whatever, right? Turns out through the scientific method, we found material explanations for what used to seem like immaterial phenomena. And that's that track record has proven extremely effective. We've invented medicine, we've invented technology, we've explained the weather, we've explained why a hurricane happens here but not there. And it seemed like this steady march of materialism explaining erstwhile immaterial phenomenon would just keep on going until it marches right up to why it feels like something to be this body. But it turns out it's just run into a brick wall and it hasn't explained that at all. Physics hasn't explained it. Biology hasn't explained it. Chemistry hasn't explained it. Psychology hasn't explained it. Psychology just presupposes it and, and explains smaller but still important phenomenon. So so um, in a way, it's it makes sense that people would expect materialism to be able to explain the you know consciousness itself, but it really hasn't. And so some people have been tempted by the dualist explanation. Maybe just dualism is true. So can you explain what is dualism and what do does it have any philosophical defenders at this point and what do they say? Yeah, if if I could just come before I get to dualism, just I, I think you really nicely articulated the you know a very popular uh, narrative, and it's I've debated a few times now with the neuroscientist Anil Seth. Uh, we debated actually at the Royal Institute of Philosophy annual debate last November. You can watch on YouTube if you want, and and this is very much the argument he gives. You know, look. We used to think you couldn't explain life and then 
we just got on with the science and we did it. And, you know, you could give another analogy like you eloquently just did with with disease and so on. Uh, So isn't it going to be the same with consciousness? And I just, I think there are a couple of important disanalogies here. I mean, one is the, the point from Galileo that I just articulated that our entire scientific approach of the last 400 years was premised on ignoring consciousness. But another, perhaps more fundamentally, what I, this isn't just a scientific problem. And, and the way to see that is that consciousness is not a publicly observable phenomenon. You, you can't, I can't look inside your head and see your feelings and experiences, right? Now, you know, scientists are used to dealing with things you can't observe, fundamental particles or quantum wave functions, or maybe even other universes some, some scientists take seriously. But there's a crucial difference in all these other cases. We theorize about things we can't observe in order to explain what we can observe. This is the whole point of science, right? We're trying to explain publicly observable observation experiments. In the unique case of consciousness, the thing we are trying to explain is not publicly observable, right? We do, consciousness isn't something we discovered in a looking down a microscope or in a particle collider. We know about it in a very different way. We know it through our private immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. You know, if you're in pain, you're just immediately aware of your pain. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't know it existed. So so it's a very, very different. And, and so that contrasts totally with life, right? With life, it was about ob- stuff we can observe, right? Plants and animals, we, they're a complicated observable behavior. We were trying to explain observable behavior. That, that's, what's, that's what physical science is good at. You postulate mechanisms to explain behavior. Ultimately, you postulate the laws of physics. Physics is, that's what it's designed for. But it's just a totally different explanatory project in the case of consciousness, which we're not trying to explain publicly observable behavior. We're trying to explain these invisible private feelings that we're immediately aware of. So the success of physical science in doing what it does I don't think gives us any reason to think, oh, materialism is, uh, is going to be true about consciousness. It's, it's like saying, oh, you know, science has been really good. So it, it's going to explain morality. You know, it's going to explain whether abortion is permissible. You know, we can do an experiment and we can decide whether abortion is permissible. That's, it's just a different kind of question. Anyway, so, so, so that was just commenting on the, the life analogy. But so these kind of worries, as you say, might lead, lead a lot of philosophers to... Um, to dualism, uh, dualism being the view that consciousness is out, is non-physical outside of the physical workings of the body and brain. Perhaps it's in an immaterial soul that's closely connected to the body, but is but is somehow distinct from it. So this, you know, I mean, this is probably the most popular theory of consciousness among in human history. You know, m- many cultures have had people have had dualist intuitions. Many religions. But there are still proponents of dualism, perhaps most famous, I've already mentioned him, the Australian philosopher David Chalmers, who coined this phrase, the hard problem of consciousness, which really drew people's attention to the mystery of consciousness. But he is also actually a dualist. Now, he calls himself a naturalistic dualist because he thinks consciousness is not physical, but he wants, he thinks we can bring it into the domain of science. He wants to see it as a law-governed scientific phenomenon, even though one distinct from the from the physical processes. Uh, so he's, you know, if you even ever meet David Chalmers, he's the most kind of secular atheist. I've guy. actually, I've actually had him. Oh, yeah. I've had, I've had him on this podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So he's not at all a spiritual kind of woo-woo kind of guy that you might expect from being a dualist. But yeah, so, so that, that would be the dualist position, which many people 
dissatisfied with materialism turn to. I don't like either position myself, but so yeah. So how does the dualist respond to to the objection? So you know, the dualist says mate, there's material stuff that physics and chemistry studies, like atoms and quarks and molecules and so forth. And then there's consciousness stuff. It's like a different kind of stuff. It's not like the stuff you can grab. It's it's you know the ghost in the machine, right? It's like the soul in the body. How do they explain the fact that every time I have a uh, you know one or more likely too many whiskeys, which is a totally physical thing? Whiskey is just a f- physical liquid, so far as we know. Although maybe there's some soul in the whiskey, some soul stuff as well. Every time I have a physical cup filled with ethanol, it changes how my consciousness feels. How does the material stuff touch the ghostly soul stuff so reliably in such a law-like way? Yeah, I'm a big fan of whiskey myself. I get really happy on whiskey, but then I just feel terrible the next day. Anyway, yeah, so, well, this was as for a long time been the classic objection to dualism, famously framed by Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia, who, um, who yes. Rene Descartes, to, to, um, yeah, the uh, famous dualist in history, was, was the private tutor of. And um, she used to torture him by making him get up early, which he wasn't used to, which killed him in the end, I think, at the age of 42 of pneumonia. But I had quite an interesting life, Descartes. You should tell that to my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. No, no good getting people up in the morning. Yeah, so, so, so she worried about this. You know, she worried how can this immaterial, non-spatial, non-physical stuff connect with the physical brain, and uh, and also connecting with what you just said. The philosopher Gilbert Ryle famously mockingly dismissed dualism as the ghost in the machine. So the way David Chalmers solves this problem is by postulating special laws of nature that connect up the physical brain to non-physical consciousness, which he calls them psychophysical laws. So these are basic principles of nature. So you've got the laws of physics, right? That, you know, scientists try to get as simple as possible, the basic equation of physics. So Chalmers believes in them, but he also thinks that there are these extra fundamental principles that connect consciousness to the physical world in two directions. So, so when, um, you know, when I'm seeing you now. Actually, you're down there. My camera's up here. I'm just pretending to look at you. But, you know, the light hits my eyes, makes changes in my brain, and then changes happen in consciousness and vice versa. You know, my consciousness, there's pain in my consciousness that makes changes in my brain and causes me to scream out and so on. Uh, So it's the psychophysical laws connecting the two up. And Chalmers think, you know, it's going to be a largely empirical task working out what they are. So we said earlier, it's the task of one task of the science of consciousness to track the neural correlates of consciousness to work out which kinds of brain activity go along with consciousness. But then we've still got the why question. It's at that point that Chalmers plugs in these psychophysical laws to answer the why question. Now, you might think it sounds a little bit like cheating, you know, like you're basically just saying it just happens, you know, you just postulating these laws and that's it. But, you know, Chalmers says, I think kind of fairly, even though I'm not a fan of dualism. I think he's 
he's got a good, res- a fair enough response on this point. Well, that's what everyone, everyone has to stop somewhere. Wittgenstein famously said, explanations have to end somewhere. Uh, I say this about three times in my book. Explanations have to, in my new book, explanations have to end somewhere. You know, you might stop at, you might stop at God or you might stop at the Big Bang or you might stop at physics. Chalmers says, well, this is where I stop, you know, physics and these psychophysical laws. And we need them to explain consciousness. That's just my stopping point. Interesting. So does he believe that their psychophysical laws govern the causal relationship between physical stuff and consciousness stuff. Yeah. I mean, in right? his, his early days, David Chalmers, he, he, he was what we call an epiphenomenalist, which is just a fancy name for saying consciousness doesn't do anything. So he thought the brain activity creates the consciousness, but the consciousness just hangs around there and um, doesn't actually impact back on the brain. So my pain doesn't actually cause my screaming or my conscious thoughts don't cause what I'm saying now. Uh, So the psychophysical laws just go in one direction. I think he's now not so sympathetic to that view for various reasons. Like it's puzzling how to make sense of how I'm managing to talk about consciousness. If conscious, if my consciousness, you know, I could talk about my conscious experience. How is that possible if it doesn't impact on my brain and therefore, you know, partially cause the movements of my lips? So he's not so simple. But yeah, so it governs the, um, I think he's now more sympathetic to the views that they go in two directions. Right. So does he think that there are a set of laws that govern how the stuff of souls behave? Right. So yeah, this is actually, this is a good point I, I should have mentioned. So like, is, is there a laws of physics for consciousness, ghostly stuff? Yeah. So Chalmers is, is um, not, this is the other qualification I should have made, I guess. Chalmers is unlike Rene Descartes, he doesn't necessarily believe in souls. He's not a substance dualist, which is someone who believes in that the mind is distinct from the brain. Chalmers is rather a property dualist. So the idea, so that what, what is the distinction between objects and properties? So, pro- so this cup is, a, is an object and its properties are its size, its shape, its color, its weight, its smell, right? So, um, so for Chalmers, there's just one, there's just brains and bodies, right? There's no soul. There's no spooky stuff. But some physical objects like brains have two, diff- two radically different kinds of property or characteristic. They have their physical properties, the neuroscience studies, you know, the electrochemical signaling and so on. And they also have invisible consciousness properties, pleasure, pain, colors, smells, and and they're just different kinds of properties. What governs which objects have both properties and which objects only have one property? Yeah, it's a good, good probing questions. I have to get myself into David Chalmers. Oh, just to emphasize again, this is not my view. Just get myself into J- yeah, David Chalmers' view. Yeah, I, well, again, it would be the psychophysical laws. So the psychophysical laws would just... Det- so let's, 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 let's take a concrete example. So, so there are, as I say, there are these various proposals for the neural correlates of consciousness. What kind of brain activity goes along with consciousness? Uh, actually, there's going to be at the, um, the, the ASSC, which is a big science, the, the big annual science consciousness conference. There's going to be, there's an ongoing fight between the global workspace theory and the integrated information theory. And at the moment, they're, they're working on what's called an adversarial collaboration, where they 
they worked together to try and design experiments that they would both agree which you know which side would be right depending on how the experiment goes anyway i'm i'm digressing again let me come back to your point so let's let's just pretend for the sake of discussion that the integrated information theory turns out to be correct right that theory tells us that you get consciousness in a system when there's more integrated information in the whole system than in its parts. So this, so this cup probably isn't conscious because there's, there's probably more integrated information in the molecules than in the cup of tea as a whole. But what's striking about the brain is the way it stores information is really dependent on connections and integration. So there's very high levels of integration. Okay, so, th- so that's, that's one. Let's say that turns out to be right. Well, then Chalmers will say, There is a fundamental psychophysical law in our universe that says when you get more integrated information in the whole and the parts, you get consciousness. And that's just a basic, basic, like a law of physics, like the law of gravity or Schrodinger's equation or something. It's just a fundamental law of consciousness. And and, uh, before we get to global workspace, what would the implications, if true, of that theory be for computation and computers and so forth. Yeah, good question. So if, if integrated information theory is true, basically computers are not conscious if they're anything like computers we have now, because unlike the human brain, the, the way computers store information is not so dependent on, not as dependent on, on the connections. You, if you take out a couple of transistors, you don't lose a hell of a lot of information. About the, regarding the brain, you take out a few neurons, you lose a lot of information because it's all, you know, there's uh, 86 billion neurons, each connected to 10,000 others, yielding trillions of connections. It's all about connectivity. So even it, so if, if it, integrated information theory is correct, even if we have, you know, computers that are, you know, store huge amounts of information and pass the Turing test, which it looks like it is now imminent. Uh, I, you know, I've been interested in consciousness for like 20 years and there's been so many media reports that this computer passes the Turing test, which was Alan Turing, the father of modern computing, his famous test of whether a computer is intelligent, can it fool people into thinking it's a human being? And there's always these newspaper reports, but actually it it has never been officially passed. But, you know, seeing the latest AI developments, I was at an AI summit in Stockholm a couple of weeks ago. I have to think GPT-4 essentially passes it or in spirit yeah, passes yeah. it. I mean, I point. think there are still like a couple of glitches which can give it away in, in the in the proper procedural tests they have, but it, it does certainly look imminent if it hasn't been, been done already. But anyway, sorry, I'm digressing a lot tonight. But um, so yeah, if IIT is right, even if you get a supercomputer that passes the Turing test, it will not be conscious uh, unless... It's a very different, I mean, obviously it depends what you mean by a computer, but what we tend to think of as a computer now, it's not going to cut it. So what is global workspace theory? Global workspace theory uh, roughly is the idea that consciousness is a matter of how information in the brain, how broad, how broadly broadcast it is to many different systems in the brain. So you get a lot, you know, a lot of systems in the brain are, are quite local and might just regulate breathing or something. You know, you don't have to think about your breathing or or your balance or so you get a lot of maybe systems in the brain that have quite complex information, but they're quite local and specific. Whereas other systems are getting and receiving information really broadly. Daniel Dennett famously called this fame in the brain. You know, that's just like information that everyone knows about or cerebral celebrity. Dan Dennett's very good at these kind of catchy phrases. So so that's that's the view of the integrated information theory. Sorry, of 
the global workspace theory. In other words, that what what is brought into consciousness is that information which is widely widely available to to many widely many available in the brain as opposed to narrowly yeah 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 pretty much obviously there's lots of different ways in which this worked out it was originally designed by Bernard Bars who was one of the early pioneers on consciousness who couldn't get a job because he wanted to work on the science of consciousness you know for a lot of the latter half of the 20th century it was you know it was a great taboo to talk about consciousness because it was this weird, unscientific thing. And, you know, it's only since the 90s, really, that it's partly because of this phrase by David Chalmers, partly because of people like Bernard Bars actually coming up with scientific theories. It's become a, it's become a serious scientific issue. I guess my, my, what I want to press is that's all brilliant, but it's not just a scientific issue. We need to be aware of the philosophical underpinnings of this problem that make it very different from more, you know, more standard scientific challenges. In a way, in the past, philosophy and science have succeeded when questions stop becoming philosophical questions and start becoming scientific questions, right? Because, you know, philosophy used to encompass everything from the questions we're talking about to what we would now call physics, chemistry, if you go back to, you know, Aristotle, they, they all saw, you know, because they had no tools to test things um, or fewer tools to test things, they were really just like shooting from the hip with intuitions and logic and thought experiments precisely in the domain of physics and chemistry. And later those domains graduated from the philosophy classroom into the testable science classroom. So I mean, in, in some way, are integrated information theory, global workspace theory, are they candidates for having the hard problem of consciousness graduate into testable science, whether or not they succeed? That's a good question. I, I think sometimes we can exaggerate. I think there's a lot of truth in what you just said. Sometimes we can exaggerate it a little bit. I mean, Aristotle did do a lot of observation and, you know, studying the biological world in a lot of detail. So, you know, I think it's always been a mix. And, you know, um, a lot of the Islamic world, you know, did very good experimental science when um, Christian Europe was still in the dark ages. But anyway, but I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm nitpicking. Yeah. So, so is, so yeah, I mean, I, I think you're totally right. I think what we all, philosophy is what you have when the rules of the game are not fixed. You know, ultimately we want, when you have solid foundations for something that everyone, everyone agrees with, or there's broad consensus, that's when it becomes a science. So the subtitle of my book, Galileo's Error is Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. So that, that's very much what, what, I'm tr- what I'm trying to do is suggest how we could move towards this being, I mean, I think we're not really at first base on how to think about consciousness as a, as a society. And we need to, as I say, rethink the science that's bequeathed to us by Galileo to do that, because it, it's not going to be just business as usual, because the, our whole conception of science at the moment is it's all about account, accounting for public observation experiments. And that is just not what you're doing with consciousness. I'm sorry, that is just not you're trying to account for this invisible thing that is not publicly observable. And science, physical science at least, de- postulates mechanisms to explain observable behavior. Whereas in the te- case of consciousness, we're dealing with these subjective qualities, these colors, sounds, smells, tastes that can't be 
totally captured in that purely quantitative language. So we need to really, really, really rethink how we think about science, not not to be misunderstood. I'm not saying we need to get rid of the science we have or do it differently. I'm not going to tell neuroscientists how to do their job, but we need to move, I think, to a more expansive conception of science. We one that takes takes as our, our foundational data, not just the data of public observation experiments, but also the private reality of consciousness as fundamental data points for our theorizing. I mean, I go a bit back and forth on this. In, in the book, I said, you know, we need to move towards a more expansive conception of science. The way I tend to put it now, and I itch in my new book, is, is just to say, no, no, keep science it is. But we need to rediscover philosophy. And remember, actually, there's this broader project of philosophy in which science is embedded. I think that's an important part of the project of finding out about reality. So, so yeah, so I, 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 don't think, I don't think things like global workspace theory and integrated information theory are complete theories of consciousness because all, all, as important as they are, what they are doing is telling us as I say, which kinds of brain activity go along with which kinds of experience. That's brilliant, but that's not the end of the story. We ultimately, we want explanation of why. Why does integrated information go along with consciousness if it does? Why does data information that's broadly available go along with consciousness? And that's where we have to come to the philosophy. Is, it, is the materialist solution going to work out? Is the dualist solution going to work out? My own favorite view, which we haven't got on too bad psychism, is that going to work out? And, 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 and just, I mean, just to make this point in, in, in a slightly different way, one more time, that each of these philosophical options are empirically equivalent in the sense that you're not going to distinguish between them with, a, with, a, with an experiment. For any empirical data, all of these theories, materialism, David Chalmers' dualism, my panpsychism will just interpret the data in diff- in their own way. So it's it's not so that's another and perhaps a more straightforward way. I often start with that actually. Perhaps a more straightforward way of saying this isn't just a scientific. We can't answer all the questions here with an experiment because we st- we end up as when we get to the why question, we're stuck with these different philosophical options that you can't distinguish with an experiment. So you just have to do some philosophy, try and assess them on their own terms. Before we get to panpsychism, your favorite explanation, I want to remind listeners of the conversation I had with David Deutsch. This reminded me of that conversation for two reasons. First, because David emphasizes the primacy of explanation as the purpose, the goal of scientific thinking. Whereas many people would say science is only in the business of predicting reality, of coming up with predict accurate models of reality, David Deutsch says, no, prediction is, is very useful, but the ultimate goal of science is to create explanations of reality, to answer why things are the way they are uh, and to explain. And he makes a very compelling case with examples of why science is about explaining rather than merely predicting. And you make the point that integrated information, global workspace theory, These sorts of, I mean, this whole line of thinking seeks to predict, uh, to come up with a model that predicts which neural processes are associated with consciousness. But really, you know, if either of them were true, it would not equal an explanation of why those particular neural processes are associated with consciousness. What, you know, why do they need to be conscious? What is the consciousness doing? It, It would, it would just, it would just basically seem like the restatement of a mystery that we can now predict. 
Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it, actually. And I mean, I'd very much agree with David Deutscher on that point. I mean, and David Deutscher is a physicist. A, a, a good way of making this point is thinking about quantum mechanics, which is, you know, quantum mechanics in terms of the equations is our best scientific theory, our most experimentally supported, and huge amounts of our technology are based on it. Pretty much everything. Uh, I think general relativity, our other great theory, I think it's just GPS pretty much that depends on that, whereas quantum mechanics is just absolutely everything. So, th- so in terms of prediction, what stuff does, it's incredible. The problem is there's absolutely no agreement on what the hell that theory is telling us about reality. What What's going on in reality to make that theory true? And there are all these different interpretations. And some, a lot of physicists get annoyed with that. And they say, um, it's not, it's not my job. It's not my job to decide between rival explanations of it's these not predictions. Real science. Yeah. That have it's no, not real uh, science. Right. Yeah. So in that way, would you say like rival interpretation of, of quantum mechanics is, a, is an analogy or, or um, analogous to this problem of consciousness? Yeah. In, in that sense, I don't want to exaggerate it. You know, I've, I'm not particularly into sort of quantum theories of consciousness or anything. So sometimes it can be like, oh, these are both mysterious. Maybe. So I'm not, I'm not trying to advocate a quantum theory of consciousness. I'm just saying in the sense that there's these different interpretations of quantum mechanics of what is going on in reality that explains what's the, that the equations work and you can't do an experiment or at least at this stage, we can't do an experiment to distinguish between them. Similarly with consciousness, right? So we've got this is global workspace theory, right? Is integrated information theory about, about which kinds of experience go along with, which kinds of brain activity go along with consciousness. Even when we settle that, you still want to know why is it, is it because dualism is true? Is it because materialism is true? Is it because panpsychism is true? We need the explanation. So yeah, I, I think it's very analogous in, in that sense. And, another, and also analogous is that people now cannot get jobs because they wanted work on this thing in quantum mechanics. What we call it philosophy of quantum mechanics. Physicists call it foundations of quantum mechanics. And um, you listen to the, the best philosopher of quantum mechanics, David Albert or Sean Carroll, who I've debated a few times. I you, actually you took know, you, David you, Albert's class at Columbia. Oh, wow. Fantastic. How was that? Was it? It was dizzying and and incredible. <laughs> I'm jealous, but uh, you know they say you now you cannot get a job if you want to work on this. I think things and that that was how it used to be with consciousness, and um, but thankfully things have changed with consciousness. But uh, yeah, so we need to, and you know you can understand why it is right. People, you know. The te- when you have wonderful technology, it seems so tangible and real. And if, especially if you're an experimental philosopher, it must be like, this is real shit. But we can't make these explanation questions go away. We, we, we can't make, we have to do philosophy. And sooner or later, we're going to have to face up to that, especially with consciousness. We're not going to make progress in consciousness until we realize you need to, to do philosophy to find out about reality. Okay, so again, one pit stop before panpsychism. I think in philosophy and in scientific thinking, you'll often hear when you have two theories that predict the same set of, that have the same predictions, you should go with a theory which is most parsimonious. And that word parsimony is some, sometimes seen as a synonym for simple, right? So like if, I, if, if something strange happens, if I see a rock fly up outside of my window my theory should not be that gravity has been overturned in the past few seconds, but only in the location of Earth where the rock flew upwards. 
possible. I mean, it un, improbable, let's say. My theory should be maybe someone threw, threw a rock upwards and I didn't see it go down, right? And that's somehow more parsimonious. And then there's, you can get into, I think, I think reasonable people can have vigorous disagreements about which of two theories is more parsimonious, right? And this is a problem in quantum mechanics because is it more parsimonious that probability is inherent in the physical laws of the universe? Like there are laws that are not law-like in the sense we're used to, but actually have probability built into them that they're, you know, God is rolling the dice as Einstein put it. Or is it more parsimonious that there are, that we live in a multiverse and universes are constantly splitting every time a, a quantum event happens? It's like, I could, one could sort of argue either side of that. So how do you think of the principle of parsimony and how do you think of that with regard to rival theories of the hard problem of consciousness? I think it's very important. So you're totally right. I mean, I think people sometimes have a, a naive understanding of scientific inquiry, like you just do the experiment and get the data. Whereas for any scientific data that, I mean, in principle, there's always an infinite number of theories that could account for the data. And we, we go for the simplest one. So I, this for me is what was, what rules out dualism. Basically. I used to think, actually, I've changed my mind on this in, in my book, Galileo's era. I, I suggested there were scientific problems of dualism that we know enough about the brain to know that you know, that, that, that there is a non-physical consciousness impacting on it and making neurons fire and stuff. And there isn't a ghost in the machine. But actually, the, the more I've talked to neuroscientists, we've got a, a lot of interdisciplinary consciousness work here at my university, Durham, or many different kinds of scientists, actually. Um, talking to con- condensed matter physicists changed my view on this a lot. But um, actually, I, I just don't think we know enough about the brain to know that. So it feels, you know, it feels a bit ridiculous, kind of non-physical consciousness making the brain. It feels like a poltergeist playing with the brain. But actually, just as a matter of fact, I just don't think we know enough about the brain to rule it out. I think people just think it sounds silly rather than actually having solid scientific data to rule it out. So I, so I actually think consciousness, David Chalmers style consciousness, is a coherent scientific possibility. I just think parsimony on parsimony considerations we should turn to other theories first, right? Why believe in two kinds of thing, physical stuff and non-physical consciousness, if you can just believe in one kind of thing? So, um, so I think that would push us to one of the other two options. Uh, materialism, we've already discussed. I've said some reasons why I don't like that. My own view, panpsychism, I also think is, is more parsimonious than dualism. Well, because, I mean, to put it this way, dualism takes both consciousness and physical stuff to be fundamental and distinct, whereas the materialist just takes the physical to be to fundamental and consciousness emerges from the physical, whereas my preferred view, panpsychism, does it the other way around, right? We take consciousness to be fundamental and the physical world arises from underlying facts about consciousness. But either way you do it, it's, it's good for parsimony, right? Because you're just taking one kind of thing as fundamental instead of what the dualist does, taking two kinds of things as fundamental. Okay, so at long last, explain panpsychism and how how uh, what reasons are there to favor it uh, compared to materialism? So yeah, so we, I mean, one way into this, we've been trying for a long time now, several decades at least, to explain consciousness in terms of totally non-physical 
processes in the brain, and I think we've got precisely nowhere. So you mean totally physical? You mean totally physical ex- processes in the brain? I think you said non-physical. Oh, sorry. Well spotted. Uh, yes, I did mean that. So we've been trying, as the materialist wants to do, to explain consciousness in terms of purely physical properties, processes in the brain, and we've got nowhere. The panpsychist proposes turning that whole explanatory project on its head, right? So instead of starting with physics and physical science and trying to get consciousness out of that, instead we start with consciousness and try and get physics out of underlying facts about consciousness. It turns out that that's actually surprisingly easy to do. And, uh, and here we bring in um, the really important work from the 1920s by the philosopher I'm sure a lot of people have heard of, and Nobel laureate Bertrand Russell. I, I think we should think of Russell as the Darwin of consciousness. I think he really solved all the mysteries here. And um, for various historical reasons, his very important work on consciousness in the 1920s got forgotten about for a long time. And But it's recently, in the last 10, 15 years, been rediscovered in academic philosophy and has inspired this return to a sort of Bertrand Russell-inspired version of panpsychism. Okay, so shall I give you the basic idea? Yes, please do. So... So yeah, it sounds kind of weird. At the, how'd you get physics out of consciousness? What the hell is that all about? But so what? really what Russell was thinking about was again, uh, kind of something we've already touched on. He was just spending a lot of time thinking of the fact that our fundamental science is purely mathematical, which, you know, we sort of take for granted, but it's in a way, it's quite a, it's, it's, it's quite a peculiar thing. Now, you know, of course, as a working scientist, it's very useful that science is mathematical. You can get very precise predictions. But Russell's thinking, what does it mean as a philosopher interested in the ultimate nature of reality that our most fundamental science is just equations, is just maths or math, as you Americans say, because we, we say it plural, maths. Uh, anyway, but... Um, Never understood that. Yeah. Well, we say physics, don't we? We don't say physic. I don't know doesn't matter. Anyway, so what Russell thinks, what Russell thought it meant is that actually our, our fundamental science isn't really telling us anything at all about fundamental reality. It's merely describing its mathematical structure. As far as physics is concerned, ultimate reality could turn out to be anything, right? The only constraint physics imposes is that it has this mathematical structure. So whatever's going on at the fundamental level of reality, as long as it has the right mathematical structure, you're going to be able to get physics out of that. So this was Russell's insight. And panpsychists, contemporary panpsychists, exploit this in the following way. So the hypothesis is what we've got at the fundamental level of reality, maybe networks of very simple conscious entities interacting in very simple, predictable ways because they're very simple conscious entities. Through their simple interactions, they form certain patterns, certain mathematical structures. And then the, th- then the claim is those mathematical structures just are what we call physics. So in that way, you get physics out of underlying facts about consciousness. This, it's often given this, um, I like to give this famous line from the last page of Stephen Hawking, Brief History of Time, where he said, you know, even the final theory of physics will just be a bunch of equations. It won't tell us what breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe. So for the panpsychist, it's consciousness that breathes fire into the equations. So the basic idea is, you know, we, we, can't, get, we can't get consciousness out of physics, but actually, we can get physics out of consciousness quite easily. We, we know that can be done. So um, that's, that's, that's the expansion project that works out. So when you say that um, 
that the, the, the fundamental reality of the universe is just a bunch of equations. You know, one point I've, I've heard people make is the equations of physics, while they include time as an important variable, don't say anything about whether time has to run forwards or backwards. And yet it seems that time only runs in one direction. At least that's how we experience it, right? But in principle, all of the equations we know of would be compatible with the universe where every, uh, you know, with the Christopher Nolan Tenet universe, where it's like the, the world is just operating according to the laws of physics, but in rewind, right? Is that, is that um, at all related to the point you're making about the distinction between the, the equations and the reality? Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's, it is certainly related and it's a fascinating problem. I suppose, I mean, I suppose different physicists would react to this in different ways. Some people, many physicists, such as Sean Carroll or my friend uh, Barry Lower, uh, Rutgers University, would, um, would try to give a sort of reductive account of what you're talking about, the direction of time, maybe in terms of increasing entropy or something. But other physicists like uh, Lee Smolin, who... Um, who has some very interesting ideas. Actually, I, I recently won some money to try and work out if the, spend three years trying to work out if the universe is conscious and we're going to have a, a conference in, in, in the US in September actually bringing together some leading physicists who put consciousness at a fundamental level, at the fundamental level in their theories. And um, Sean Carroll and I are going to be debating at that event actually. But anyway, um, so, so the reason I'm linking to Lee Smolin, not only does he think consciousness plays a role in fundamental physics, but also time. He's very passionate on real time. And he makes the league kind of a similar link I've made to Galileo, you know, where Galileo took consciousness out, thought, you know, let's just focus on the mathematics. He thinks Galileo also took, in a sense, took time out. When we mathematize nature, we took time out. And he wants to have a theory of physics that puts in the fundamental passage of time back in. Of course, that's that's very controversial. So, um, where are we up to? Anyway, yes. Yeah, so look, what we what is less controversial is that what you get from physics is mathematics, right? So maybe so material for materialists, materialists are like, yeah, that's all there is, right? The fundamental story is this story we can just completely describe in mathematics, and everything else comes out of that. Time, if it exists, consciousness, you know, plasticine orange juice, everything comes out of that. Wouldn't they go a now, little further? Wouldn't, is, they say, wouldn't they say the mathematics suggests that we live in a quantum universe at the, at the most fundamental level? Yeah, but when, what is quantum mechanics? Quantum mechanics is, is also a bunch of equations. It's, it's the Schrodinger equation being the fundamental one. So when you look at what does physics have to, I mean, you're, 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 you're a good philosopher here. So you know, to qualify it slightly, it's not just mathematics. Arguably, there's also some causal notions in, um, in physics. It's disputed, actually, whether you have causation in physics itself. This is another thing Russell focused on. But certainly you have things like a law of nature, w- which is not just a mathematical notion. So, so you have some sort of causal notions in there. But so you can capture that by saying it's purely quantitative. We have this purely quantitative story of sort of mathematical causal processes. My claim is that cannot be the fundamental story of reality, because if it were, you wouldn't have consciousness. You, cu- you can't get subjective quality as Galileo understood. 
You can't get subjective qualities of colors and sounds and smells and tastes out of just mathematical structure. It can't be done. That's why Galileo said, you know, if we want physics to be mathematical, we have to take consciousness out of the story. So you ca- I just think you can't, that theory cannot be true because if it were, consciousness wouldn't exist. But you can do it the other way around. I think Russell proved that starting with consciousness, you can get mathematical structures of physics out of that. So you can't get physics out, you can't get consciousness out of mathematical structures, but you can get mathematical structures out of consciousness. So that's why I think, you know, comparing these two explanatory projects, materialism and panpsychism that are sort of the mirror image of each other, I think the materialist one we've never had any success at. There are good philosophical theories, philosophical reasons to thinking it's just an incoherent project. Whereas the panpsychist project, we the mysteries have been solved. We know how to do it. It feels a bit weird, but it's sort of... So I think I've no-brainer. understood everything you said in this conversation, except for how we get uh, the, the your actual description of your panpsychism. I don't actually understand what you mean when you say mathematical structures you know, like there is an, I guess, an, an emergent phenomenon that comes from medical, mathematical structures that just, sorry, that comes from conscious entities that just is the mathematical structures. Can you, can you uh, give another go at that for me and try to explain that in, in some other way yeah. or, in, yeah, or in any way? Fair enough. Fair enough. So, so this is what, I mean, I, I, this is what, uh, my my PhD supervisor Galen Strawson, who's another very good panpsychist, used to press. You know that we we think we know what matter is. We have this sense that you know it's this stuff, and you know it's hard, and it's it's. But actually, as science has progressed, as it were, the substance of matter has sort of evaporated. Gail, Galen Strawson, who I just mentioned, calls this the silence of physics. You know, physics tells us less and less. You know, we used to think in Victorian physics, you know, we got these little solid billiard balls. Then as science has progressed and quantum mechanics and really we lose any understanding beyond the equations. So we don't, we don't really, here's another way of putting it, we, we don't really know what matter is. All we know is what it does. Actually, this is, I guess, another way of putting the same point. Physics doesn't tell us what matter is. It tells us what it does. Like think, you know, what does physics tell us about an electron, right? Well, it tells us it has mass. It tells us it has charge. Okay. Well, what are mass and charge? Well, things with mass attract other things with mass. That's gravity. And things with mass resist acceleration. The, the more mass something has, the harder it is to accelerate it or slow it down. What's charge? Well, things with opposite charges attract, things with like charges repel. It's all about what stuff does, right? It's just about behavior. It's not really telling us what an electron is. It's just telling us what it does. I sometimes say physics is like playing chess when you don't care what the pieces are made of, right? You just care what they do, right? So, so whatever's it, so physics doesn't care what's at the fundamental level of reality. It just cares that it's doing the right stuff. So the panpsychist poses this, right? Fine. So what there is at the fundamental level of reality, on our view, are these little conscious entities, and they are doing what the equations of physics says things at the fundamental level are doing. As long as they're doing the right stuff, you're going to get physics out of that. So, like, if, if, to, is that is that the same as saying that, like, my camera is like quarks are quarks are ju- just are conscious? Is that or are there some other entities that physics has not yet named? that are more fundamental than all of the fun, most fundamental partic- particles physics has named. Right. So there is, there's an important question we don't know the answer to in the background here, which is what, 
what are the fundamental physical things and famously physics is not complete. We don't know how to marry our best theory of big things, namely general relativity, to our best theory of very little things, namely quantum mechanics. On our current models, the quarks and electrons are and 10 other kinds of particle are the fundamental building blocks. But actually, many physicists, theoretical physicists are inclined to think that actually the fundamental constituents of reality are not little particles, but universe-wide fields. This seems to fit better with quantum field theory. And particles are just local excitations in those fields. So if you combine this view with panpsychism, then we get the view that the, the fundamental forms of consciousness underlie these universe-wide fields rather than little conscious things. But in either case, physics is just telling us, basically physics says this, right? There are these things and they do such and such. The panpsychist says, but, it, but, but, but physics doesn't tell us what the things are that are behaving in such and such way. It just tells you how they're behaving. It doesn't tell you what they are. Panpsychism plugs in an answer to what they are. So it, in a way, it fills and it in a gap. it says that they are, they are the conscious leads. entities. Yeah. So an electron, let's, for the sake of simplicity, think about electrons. An electron is just a conscious entity that behaves in the, you know, its entire nature is just being a conscious entity, but it does stuff. And what it does is what physics tells you an electron does. So, um, so on this view, what explains the special at least the seemingly special consciousness that human beings and more complex animals seem to have. Yeah, so so this is the next question I suppose. So so what so what what I think is easy for a panpsychist is getting the physics physics out of consciousness, which I think is quite an explanatory achievement, right? Because we we just end up with one fundamental kind of thing. We're back to the parsimony. We've just got consciousness at the bottom. I think that's a real expansion advantage. But the thing that's tri- maybe trickier for a panpsychist is, okay, okay, so we've got, the f- we've got physics, but how do we get our consciousness out of, you know, we've postulated these little conscious quarks and electrons or whatever. How do they come together to make the unified rich conscious experience of the human or animal brain. This is what's become known as the combination problem. And this is really where the, uh, you know, much of the energy and focus of the contemporary panpsychist research program is, is directed. And there are all sorts of w- varied and really interesting proposals. Uh, my, my own view on this matter is I've become more and more inclined to think that the problem is only really a serious problem if you, if you assume a very reductionist picture of nature. If you think, you know, really, really, there are just conscious particles and what we call Coleman's mind is just, is just the name for a very complex combination of conscious particles. So some, some panpsychists, very good philosopher called Luke Roloff's got a book called Combining Minds, try to make sense of that very reductionist form of panpsychism. But I'm less and less inclined to think we've got any scientific reason to, to go that way. So I, I, I think it's perfectly viable just to, just to postulate, again, kind of adding another primitive in a way that these conscious particles have basic combinatorial capacities, basic capacities to, in certain circumstances, combine into unified conscious wholes. And again, it's a, it, it will be a, an empirical question, right? So is the integrated information theory right? Or is the global workspace theory right? We're, we're back to that question. We answer the scientific question. Let's say it's integrated information theory. David Chalmers will say, okay, well, we, then we plug in the psychophysical laws. 
I would say at that point, no, 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 no. Forget those psychophysical laws. That's not very parsimonious theory. We just go for conscious particles with these basic combinatorial capacities. So, so, integ- so integrated information theory tells us you get consciousness in the brain when there's more integrated information in the whole and the parts. So the panpsychist will say, conscious particles combine into unified wholes when they form a system where there's more integrated information in the in the whole and the parts so so that would be yeah more or less my kind of complete panpsychist theory interesting i mean in very 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 roughly no no that i, I mean it it makes well what i can say is it makes as much sense as the at least as much sense as the alternatives. I can, I can give I'll it that. I'll take that. I'll take that. I mean, you know, panpsychism for a long, long time was laughed at insofar as it was thought about it at all. And it is incredible how it's come to be. You know, when I finished, first finished my PhD, I was told by well-meaning professors, maybe don't talk about that panpsychism stuff. You know, you might not get a job. And it's amazing how it's become a mainstream position that you learn at university, you have to take seriously. It's, it's still very much the third option. You know, materialism and dualism are still more popular, but it's it's taken very seriously. So I, I'm happy if you think it's a, it make, makes as much sense. At least, maybe more. Should I worry that I am bullying my chair and my table right now uh, by sitting on conscious entities with such lack of care? No. So that this is another common... Um, misconception of panpsychism that maybe I should have started with that panpsychists don't necessarily think absolutely everything is conscious, right? They don't necessarily think tables and chairs and rocks and socks are conscious, even though actually that's the meaning of the word. Pan means everything. Psyche means conscious or mind. But uh, so the, t- the, the basic commitment is that the fundamental building blocks of reality, whether they're fundamental particles or whether they're universe-wide fields, the basic building blocks of reality have very rudimentary forms of consciousness. And then in certain, perhaps very limited circumstances, those conscious building blocks come together to form things with unified consciousness like the human or the animal brain. But um, I'm inclined to think that probably doesn't happen in tables and chairs. Probably natural selection, as it were, worked this out and exploited it. I talk a lot in my new book about the evolution of consciousness. So probably outside of the biological realm, I would say consciousness is, is just at the level of fundamental physics. But um, and actually, well, some, I mean, some panpsychists do think literally everything is conscious. I mentioned Luke Roloff, who has this very well, That's interesting because like, you, you'd have to, you, even that wouldn't get you out of all the questions because, you know, my chair is made up of chair legs and a chair head and how do you define everything there is the leg independently conscious independent of the chair and how and what separates a half a chair from a quarter of a chair from a third of a chair are all of these separate entities so luke you should get luke roloff's on to talk who is uh and an inc- I mean, spends a lot of time on these exact issues. I mean, his book is more an academic book. If you know people ha- listening or watching haven't got that background, but he's written a lot, a lot of very good popular articles as well, including in a book. Um, there was a, cl- a book called "Is Consciousness Everywhere," which was responses of scientists and philosophers to my work, including by some big physicists like Carlo Rovelli and Sean Carroll. But yeah. Um, so, but yeah, he's a very rigorous philosopher. I don't like having Luke in the audience at a talk because he always has incredibly difficult questions. But um, yeah, so I think, I mean, I think, he, as I say, he has this very reductionist picture where really your mind just is. 
a complex collection. You, you feel like you're this special unified eye, but really you're just a complex collection of conscious particles. And so to ask, okay, what's the, um, what's the connection between the, like, the consciousness of the top half of the cup and the consciousness of the bottom half of the cup is that the same as the consciousness of the whole of the cup? Or he'd say, that's just, well, that's just like, you know, there's the mass of the top half and the mass of the bottom half and then the mass of the whole cup. It's just kind of additive. You know, there's just, there's no real deep, special way of carving up this into, into a single reality. Um, but even then, even, so he literally does think tables and chairs are conscious, but he would quickly say they don't have the kind of consciousness you or I have, which is the result of millions of years of evolution, you know, they're just a, some kind of meaningless, disunified mess. It's only in the human brain that's been brought together into complex information processing, drawing in information from the environment and negotiating in, in terms of behavioral interactions with the environment. So that's the kind of rich conscious understanding we have. But yeah, that's not the kind of picture I have anyway. I, I, I do think humans and animals are a little bit special in that it's not that often conscious particles combine to make a conscious whole. And the implication of this would be that substrate independence is true, which means there's nothing special about, you know, carbon-based life or about the kinds of atoms we have in our brain, right? Like in, in principle, consciousness could be built um, in, in, in silicon, right? Whether or not our computers currently are. No? It's a good question. It's a good question. I mean, certainly panpsychists don't think consciousness is something magical or mysterious. It's not something put into the fetus by God at at some point in conception, in uh, pregnancy. So in principle, we should be able to build artificial consciousness at this AI summit I was just at and people were going around saying, you know, when are we going to get AGI? When are we going to get artificial consciousness? All the tech people were saying, you know, the next 10 minutes. And I, I estimated 5,000 years for artificial consciousness, but, uh, uh, scientists and philosophers, but, um, why did that, where did that come from? Where did that, that estimation? Yeah. Uh, I guess I, well, so I, yeah, I read an article out with the, uh, the conversation recently, which is, um, an article in uh, uh, an online magazine in the UK to get kind of academic research to a broader audience. And yeah, I mean, I'm basically just, I, I don't think um, you're going to get consciousness from more and more complex information processing. Impressive as large language models are, I don't think they're conscious. I don't, and in that sense, I don't think they really understand anything in the sense of consciously apprehending truths about reality. So I don't think you're going to get consciousness in that way. If we're thinking of artificial consciousness, I think we should be envisaging something more like an artificial living system, something like um, a bacterium in the first instance. And then maybe maybe a few, few thousand years, we'll get something as complicated as a human being. But I think it's going to be a pro- slow process. It's not going to be just, you know, getting complex information processes. Um, so, so I don't know about substrate independence, you know, Maybe you have to have quite specific sort of stuff to get consciousness, at least at least quite specific structures. But yeah, it's not magic. So yeah, so in principle, you're going to be able to make it. Okay, I've kept you longer than I said I would. I'm going to let you go. But before I do, uh, can you tell my audience where to follow you, website, Twitter handle, etc.? And can you tell them about your latest book? 
Absolutely. It's been a really fun chat, Coleman. Thank you. Uh, I do spend too much time arguing on Twitter with at Philip underscore Goff, Philip with one L, if you want to have an argument there. I have my own podcast and YouTube channel, Mind Chat, which I run with another philosopher, Keith Frankish, who has the polar opposite opinion to me. He thinks consciousness in some sense is an illusion. So I Oh yeah, I the, think is that the, Dennett, is, the Daniel Dennett position, right? Yeah, he's very much a Dennettian. And so we interview scientists and we got we got very low production values because uh, we're busy professors that don't have time. We just but uh, hopefully some good philosophy. And um website philipgoffphilosophy.com need to update that soon but there's a lot of videos and popular articles academic articles my new book um is on a yeah come slightly different theme although there's some continuity um coming out with oxford university press in november arguing that the universe has a purpose called uh, why the purpose of the universe so so i guess um everyone i mean I, Everyone thinks they have to, I always hate the dichotomies. I always hate the dichotomies, you know, materialism, dualism, we've been talking about, uh, you know, communism, US capitalism. Another one is God or Dawkins atheism, you know, which it's always kind of, which side are you on? Dawkins or the Pope, you know? And I, I've just slowly come to think there's problems with both of these classic atheism and classic belief in God. So I think, um, I think there's things traditional Western religion can't explain, like the evil and suffering. Why would a, the classic problem, why would a loving God create the horrific suffering, earthquakes, cancer, and so on? But I think there's also things traditional atheism struggles with, such as the surprising discovery of recent decades that physics is, as we have it at the moment, at least appears to be fine-tuned for the existence of life. I think, I, I kind of think this is something we're a little bit in denial about because it wasn't how we expected science to turn out. And also certain facts about the evolution of consciousness. Why didn't we evolve as zombies? So what I'm arguing for is that there is some kind, there is evidence. We should be open-minded. We should look at the evidence. And I've been persuaded there's some kind of goal-directedness at the fundamental level of reality, but it's not the traditional God. And I explore a variety of other possibilities. Maybe this, maybe maybe we're in a computer simulation. Maybe there's a bad designer or a designer of limited powers. Or maybe there's, as Thomas Nagel argued, there's, there's laws of nature with goals built into them. Maybe there's just a fundamental law of nature directing things towards life or something. Or maybe this connects closer with my uh, the work we've been talking about, cosmopsychism. Maybe the universe itself is a conscious entity with certain goals. And then I discuss the implications for human existence. So yes, that was a bit of a long ramble, but maybe we maybe I could come back on and talk to you about that. It's so I'm aiming. It's it's aimed absolutely, at a, absolutely. my first book. My first book was an academic book. My second book was aimed at a general audience. This I'm trying to do both. So each chapter has a more, it's, it's aimed at a general audience. So it's, a, it's affordable as opposed to academic books, but each chapter has a accessible bit and then a digging deeper bit where it kind of goes more into the details. So probably it'll please nobody, but uh, so yeah, I'm very excited. That's going to come out. It's, it's actually coming out in February in the US which is a bit annoying. It's uh, oh, November okay. in the UK and February. In, I don't know why there's a big gap, but um, but yeah, so maybe we could have a chat about that. So that Absolutely. should be- I'll have to have you back for that. No annoying doubt. everyone because uh, annoying religious people and atheists because saying they're both wrong. Well, that's the goal on this show to annoy as many people as possible. So it'll, it'll fit right in. Excellent. Yeah, All right, Philip really Goff, nice thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Coleman. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. 
If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.